Good evening, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Oh, man. Well, we come tonight to uh, week number 11, which is the concluding week of our survey of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because next week we're going to be hosting Pastor Anatoly from Ukraine, and uh, we'll have... Um, we'll have the evening kind of devoted to him and hearing from him and, uh, and all that's happening um, in the, the war-torn region of Ukraine and what the Lord is doing in spite of uh, Russia's attempts to wipe Ukraine off the map. Uh, the Lord is faithful and uh, using his, uh, his church uh, in the middle of war to accomplish his purpose. And so I hope that you'll make every effort. I'll make another announcement on Sunday, but I hope you'll make every effort to come. It's always an amazing blessing uh, when he's here and really inspirational. Um, you, feel, you feel really small <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you are reminded of the petty things you complained about the day that you hear from Anatoly, you know, about like growing up in a war and now living through a war and baptizing people in the middle of a war and planting churches in the bomb-riddled town, you know, a few miles over in the middle of a war. And you go, man, I was complaining about the temperature of my coffee this morning, you know? So it's humbling, it's inspiring, um, and uh, it's eye-opening. So again, I look forward to that next week. But for now, uh, we're going to conclude this, this Sermon on the Mount. So I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 7. And we'll read from 24, verse 24, to the end of the chapter. And so when you find your place there in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, I want to invite you to stand with me. We'll read uh, the Word and uh, dive into a, a very full, uh, very full concluding lesson. I think it's appropriate to probably back up just three verses and, and hear this in context. And so let's begin at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pause there. 
Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and for the privilege to spend a few moments here in the middle of the week considering um, the challenge and the truth of what you have preached to your disciples. Uh, May we take it in, may we drink deeply from the well of the eternal word. And may you use this evening as just one more little moment in our lives that you are using Romans 8.28 to mold us and shape us into your image. All things. Sickness and death and school and work and sermons and cutting the grass. You're using all of these things to accomplish your purpose in the hearts of those who love you. And so, Father, as those assembled under your name who love you, may you use this time uh, to mold us and make us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the disciples. It is not addressed to the crowds. This sermon is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to Jesus' kingdom. And just to make that emphatically clear, Jesus offers this at the end. Those who hear these words and do them, their house will not crumble. But those who hear and do not do them, their house will fall. We come to this final concluding portion of the sermon where Jesus makes a promise and offers a warning. And so this last portion I titled, Promise and Warning. The promise is this, a life lived by his precepts will withstand the storms of life and death. A life lived by Jesus' precepts will withstand the storms of life and death. The warning, storms will come. (laughs) See, that's the thing. It's kind of also a promise. Storms will come to test and prove the foundation. The truth of who we are will be exposed. It's a warning. (laughs) You can only hide the truth for so long. Storms will come to test and prove the foundation, a promise and a warning. Now, this is an appropriate concluding thought in the same way that a university course might wrap with a cumulative exam. Right? That type will challenge the student to recall and apply the entire breadth of teaching, not merely one lesson, one concept, but specifically how all the concepts work together Cumulatively. Here, Jesus compels his disciples to take from the whole of this Sermon on the Mount and choose to build their lives on these precepts, not as individual ideas where you take some and leave the others, eat the meat, and throw away the bones. There's no bones with Jesus' teaching, it's all meat. Okay? 
So not in that way has, is Jesus compelling his learners to apply these lessons, but rather as a holistic picture of a life built like a house on the rock. So therefore tonight I offer you five concluding statements and three points of application. And you know me, so you know that means we have to make headway, right? So um, saddle, uh, saddle in, uh, strap in, you know, seat belt, uh, thinking caps, whatever, reading glasses. Here we go. Number one, first concluding statement from the Sermon on the Mount and this specific portion, your life is a house. Your life is a house. We might say every life is a house. Unless your life is built on the obedience of these commands, it will crumble. It's meaningful, isn't it? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. There's a lot of people in, who, in hell who listened to a lot of sermons. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them. This has a salvific meaning, and it has a sanctification meaning. And so forgive me if I race over your heads at 100 miles an hour. I would love to have a, um, a, a, a Zoom call later on in the week to answer questions. But for tonight, we're going to plow through the material. This has a salvific meaning and a sanctification meaning, unless your life is built on the obedience of these commands. Ready? Salvific meaning is such. Only the house built on the rock of Christ's accomplished righteousness will not crumble under the scrutiny or the storm of the day of judgment. In Revelation, we read clearly, uh, I saw a great white throne and the book was opened, and all of humanity was lined up at the judgment seat of God, and only those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life were permitted into peace with God for eternity. The rest, we read, are cast into the lake of fire, which is not designed for humans. It's designed for Satan and his minions, but they join him in the rebellion against God. Only the life that is built on the obedience of these commands will stand on the day of judgment. So it has a salvation meaning. The Pharisees taught that you could earn your way into God's good graces. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into heaven. Now, remember, righteousness doesn't mean being good. It doesn't mean being right. It doesn't mean doing the right thing. It means meeting the standard of God for mankind. In meeting that standard, the human is good and does good, thinks good. They do what's right, think what is right, desire what is right. That's a byproduct. Goodness and rightness is a byproduct of meeting the standard that God requires. But that's righteousness. It's really important to think clearly about that because then we read other scriptures that speak about righteousness and we think of it as goodness or rightness instead of accomplishment to the degree 
of God's requirement. It's a subtle difference, but it means a lot theologically. In meeting that standard, the human is good and does good, but the word means you have to meet God's requirement for humankind in order to be judicially rendered innocent of all infringements concerning the standard. So when we talk about the righteousness of Jesus, we aren't talking about him being good. We're talking about him fulfilling the requirement. Anything short of that requirement is a violation which requires a penalty for God's justice to be satiated. What's required then for you and me is a righteousness that Paul calls by grace in Philippians 3, 8. It is a righteousness we have by faith. Jesus' accomplishments appropriated to us, that means to put them on by faith. We don't get this by having enough faith or strong enough faith. We get this by grace, the undeserved favor of God. So the righteousness of Jesus is appropriated to us as a gift we don't deserve, and we receive it, put it on, appropriate it to ourselves by confidence in the unseen transaction of God granting our petition. I know. It's an impossibly long sentence. But this is the point. Unless that which Jesus has accomplished has been put onto you by faith, you are a house built on sand that will crumble on the day of judgment. So that's why your life being a house has a salvation meaning. But secondly, it has a sanctification meaning. You know, James says, I'll show you my faith by my works, because faith without works is dead. Right? James says, talk is cheap. Lots of people say lots of things. Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do many mighty works in your name? Talk is cheap. You said my name. Never had your heart. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, who worked your lawlessness and blanketed it with the name of Jesus. Striking, isn't it? It's a striking standard. We will not fool the Holy Spirit. You can fool me, probably. I'm not that smart. You likely won't be able to fool your husband or wife. That's why marriage, it's one of the reasons why marriage is so good. Because, man, they see through your nonsense. You will not fool the Holy Spirit. Of course, we know the story of Ananias and Sapphira who offered a piece of land or offered the, the proceeds from the sale of a piece of land. They offered it dishonestly. They sold it for 100000 They gave 50000 They said, we sold some land. Here's $50,000 for the church. You're welcome. Right? He said, did you sell it for fifty? Yep, sold it for fifty. Here's the fifty. You're welcome. Is anybody going to do a trumpet? I think we do a trumpet now, don't we? Remember the trumpets? We gave something to the poor. And the apostle said, why would you lie to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to the Holy Spirit. He sees through you. You might fool all these people who are watching you right now thinking you're big stuff. Wow, look how generous. Look how sacrificial. Look how holy. 
the Holy Spirit sees all. And they drop dead where they stand. The house crumbled when it was put to the test of the discernment of the Spirit of God. You say you have faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. You can say lots of things. People can say lots of things. People do say lots of things. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. If you obey, it's because he's the king of your life. And when the king says do this, you do it. Obedience is thereby evidence of the confession that Jesus is Lord. And it's the confession that Jesus is Lord that saves. Not that Jesus is real. Not that he existed. But that he's Lord. He's your king. As we then obey, this is why this has a sanctification meaning. As we then obey, whoever hears and does. New habits are formed old fleshly habits for gossip and salacious imagery, material satisfaction and human notoriety, all of these things are starved out of us as we, Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. The life then of the one who hears and obeys, this is why it's sanctification, it progressively looks more and more like Jesus and less and less like the devil. To the point that you will be called, mockingly, uh, a, a little Christ, a little Christian. Have you heard what the news media has decided to label our new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, as? Uh, I, I didn't have time, nor the, really the technological know-how, uh, to show the video. It's a, it's a video I came across this week. It's, it's a media mashup, a compilation of various news media coverage Easily 20-plus different news outlets and anchors all doing the same thing. Calling Speaker of the House Mike Johnson a, I wrote a few of them down, a far-right religious ideologue, a Christian nationalist, an extremist, over and over and over again, various combinations of these words and others. Do you know what he is? He's just a practicing Christian. I, I've looked into his stuff. Because I'm not going to stand up here and say anything that I haven't looked into. I've looked into him and his life and his, his words. I've looked into everything that I, I can know about the man. He just seems to be a Christian who actually lives like a Christian. There's nothing extreme about his worldview It's merely extremely different from the world marching to Satan's drum. The life of the one who hears and obeys progressively looks more and more like Jesus and less and less like the devil. And so you might say Speaker Mike Johnson has built his house on the rock of Christ. And he looks an awful lot not like the devil. And the devil doesn't like it. You know? So, your life is a house. Number two, how you build has consequences. 
how you live has consequences. And the metaphor that Jesus uses, two men each build a house. And the similarities are implied. Watch this. Both men are involved in spiritual activity. They're building a house. Understand, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the spiritual life of the man or the woman. They are building a house. They build in the same location for the same storm, reaches both houses. They build in the same way. The houses look the same. The only difference is the foundation on which they're built. Their lives, then, look the same. Perhaps even same activities, same vocabulary, same Bible, different hearts. The key is they have different invisible underlying foundations. Now here we see a powerful rebuke of the Pharisees. This is all implied both in the teaching in these verses and the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a list. The the Pharisees... And this is uh, uh, ten, 10 things. Ready? The Pharisees had no regard for the spirituality of the soul, only the appearance of spirituality. But the house looks the same. They had no regard for purity of heart, only the external purity of hand. No regard for the integrity of their behavior, only the behavior in the eyes of men. They had no regard for obedience to God, only the appearance of obedience. The spiritual structure of the Pharisees' religion was built on sand. They prayed lots, loudly and publicly. They fasted. Everyone knew it. They made sure of it. When you fast, don't look all gaunt. Right? We're going, this is a cumulative exam. They gave money in the temple treasury and they sounded the alarm to do so. All only as a public show to enhance their own perception of spirituality and bolster their own human reputation. Their spirituality is defined by externals never reaching the inner space of the heart. Never getting to the heart. That is a foundation of sand a friend of mine shared with me while I was uh, at the cove this week um, that a longtime friend of his who he leaned on uh, as a Christian brother called him up for lunch normal hey you want to grab lunch I'm in town sure but he called to, to confess to him uh, uh, nearly a year long affair uh, that he had had with some other woman. Um, and, and this guy, uh, both the gentleman I was speaking to, my friend, and his friend who had an, uh, an affair, they're both pastors. And, uh, and, and you know, uh, the gentleman and his wife are trying to patch things up, and my friend is trying to help them, and so they're at his church, and and this guy, the adulterer, says to my friend, hey, man, when am I going to get back in the pulpit? I want to preach, man. I just, God's called me to preach, you know? And, um, and my friend said, you know, I, I, I'm all for restoration, but the problem is when I talk to him about his affair, he always talks about how, like, the troubles of ministry and that I was stressed and, and I, I just found comfort in someone else's 
It wasn't, you know, I. I violated and violated and violated and violated. It's excuses and justifications and minimizations. And he's going, I can't possibly put this man behind a pulpit. He's not even genuinely repentant. But no one in the church really knows. Only the leadership knows, and it's tense, and he's like, ah, these people know this guy's a pastor. Why isn't he teaching, you know? Right? Like, church, man, it's hard. What's going on here? You got this guy, stood in the pulpit, addicted to pornography, cheated on his wife. It's a house that looks the same as my buddy, but this one is built on sand. Looks the same, lots of spiritual activity, no foundation. That's the Pharisees. Lots of spiritual movement, no progress. Like a door on a hinge, back and forth, back and forth, and yet you come back next year, the door is still right there. Those hinges are squeaking. (laughs) Woo, we've been working all year, Pastor, you know? And here we are, right? You get it? The door hasn't moved. It hasn't gotten anywhere. Lots of spiritual activity, no progress. It's all external. Never got to the heart. A.W. Pink, speaking of the Pharisees, said they bring their bodies to the house of prayer, but not their souls. And that's it. Friends, I, uh, you know, look, I've wanted to be a pastor since I was a, a little kid. I told my pastor when I was like nine, he said, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I want to I do what you do. Which, of course, just looked like standing up in front of people and making jokes and, and, and you know, wearing a tie, and I like that. Um, and then later on, the Lord really confirmed that that wasn't just a childhood dream. That was really his call. And so you can, I'm 40, you can imagine. I mean, I, I've spent the better part of the last 30 years of my life anticipating getting to be in this moment right now. 30 years. Waiting and preparing and hoping and praying and failing and getting up and failing and getting, and failing. <laughs> yeah. And so you you think a lot about what it might be like, what might happen, what the Lord might do. You look at your heroes and you go, well, the Lord did that with him. Maybe he'll do that with me. And then you get reminded, the Lord's in control. Your job is to be faithful. His job is to produce the results. I've come to a place where I realize, friends, I do not want to be the pastor of a church of 500 or 5,000 people who make a big charade of spiritual activity. I don't want to do it. You know, give me 50 people who love the Lord and who are really living it. And I'll be content. You see? Don't pretend. You're not kidding anyone. You're only hurting yourself. How you build has consequences. Number three, how you build will be revealed. Right? They will be revealed. Either like either like my buddy's pastor friend or on the last day. 
it will at some point be revealed. The foundation of a house is invisible once the edifice is erected, but eventually the foundation will be revealed. It is inevitable. My house is built on, a, on what's called a pillar and curtain foundation. Now, you men who have been in construction or insurance or anything like that, you know what that is. Pillar and curtain. That means you have, you have pillars, you have stacks of, uh, you know, portions of uh, cement block. What's it called? The block. It's called something. Cinder block. Thank you. And, and then you have uh, uh, those, those are stationed around the house and then throughout the interior of the house. And then they have a curtain, pillar and curtain, a curtain of a brick edifice that goes all the way around. And you look at the house and looks good. Nice sturdy house, brick house, crawl space. But the pillar and curtain was a terrible idea. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they shouldn't. Because everywhere you go in my house that was built in 1979 by what, my, by what I've heard is like the, he was like the cheapest, you know, penny-pinchingest contractor of the day. Uh, you're, you're doing this. You know, you're walking downhill, <laughs> and then you're walking uphill, you know, and the doors don't latch. And you go, why isn't the door latching? And you look up there, and like the whole thing is like that. And you go, why is that like that? Unless it's like, can you tighten this hinge? And I'm like, babe, it's not the hinge. It's the floor. The whole house is, and so the doors are, you know, everywhere. I'm blessed. We're grateful. It's just a helpful illustration. From the outside, looks like a nice, sturdy brick house. But we've had to deal with these foundation issues. They've cost us thousands, and they're still not fixed. That's just to not make it, like, not let it get worse. How you build has consequences. How your house is built will eventually be revealed. Rabbi Zacharias was a world-renowned apologist traveling, doing college lectures, defending Christianity's intellectual superiority. And then he died. And then the truth about his private sexual misgivings was brought to light. He was a sexual deviant, manipulated women. He used ministry funds to keep them quiet, to prop them up financially so on. Once he died, the truth came out. The house crumbled. The name of Jesus was slandered. And I mean this not as a phrase, a turn of phrase. Um, may God have mercy on his soul, you see. Steve Fee was a popular worship leader and a songwriter, especially at the time when I was in the, in the throes of worship leadership and attempting to write songs for the church to sing and so on. He was kind of an example to me. Uh, he led worship at one of the largest churches in the United States. He was traveling the world. He was coaching and doing worship leadership lectures and things like that. And then the truth was exposed that he was embroiled in a years-long affair with a, a bandmate's wife, of all people, someone he would probably call a friend. His reputation destroyed. The name of Jesus slandered. The house crumbled. May God have mercy on his soul. You see, many others are simply on this side of the house crumbling, but it's only a matter of time before the truth of their character is revealed in such a way that it can no longer be ignored. The house will crumble as they are exposed to be wolves in sheep's clothing. May God have mercy on their souls, you see. All of these guys were 
fill-in-the-blank popular Christian artist, preacher, evangelist, whomever guy. They were all that guy before the foundation was revealed. And now they're a pile of rubble. How you build will be revealed. Don't be a pretender. What Jesus is saying is very simple. Lots of people hear his teaching, but only the ones that do them are in the kingdom. Again, they're not in the kingdom because they obey. They obey because that is the only consistent and reasonable evidence that they are part of the kingdom. My wife and I have different love languages. You guys know the five love languages. If you don't know the five love languages, especially if you're married, you should read the book. It's good. I think it's in the library downstairs. Everyone apparently speaks, communicates love, and hears love in different ways. Different people communicate and hear differently than others. And so a lot of times in a marriage, uh, one spouse is communicating love in the way that they receive and perceive love but that's not how the spouse perceives and hears and communicates love. And so they never feel or hear love because they're not being communicated to in the language that they understand. Make sense? Good. Quality time versus physical affection. Right? Gifts versus acts of, a, of, uh, of service. Right? Um, uh, I, uh, I do not love uh, yard work. Uh, Stan, one of our elders, uh, I think Stan loves yard work. He did it professionally for a while. Stan really, I think, gets a lot of joy out of things being tidy and organized and neat. And that, like, like you get the scissors out after you mow and you get those last couple of... I think he like you know, things are tidy and clean. I do not like it. I mow whatever grows, uh, you know, just, you know. Is it green? You know, there's no weed and feed. I'm not buying grass seed. Stuff grows for free, right? Um, and so, in early in my marriage, I would let the grass let the grass get a little high. My wife would say, "Will you please cut the grass?" I'd say, "Okay, fine." You know, get out there. You know, hope I'd kill it so it wouldn't grow the next time. You know, but. And, you know, uh, uh, some 15-plus years into our marriage, um, I have adopted a habit. And, and I, I, keep, I keep my yard. I keep it tidy. I blow the driveway, like, every day. Buy special equipment to take care of all my leaves. I go out there and put on my headphones and listen to podcasts and sermons and let the dust just, you know, wash over me. And I do that because I love my wife. Right, And she knows that I love her, not because I buy her gifts, because she doesn't care about gifts. But she hears love when it's spoken through acts of service. So I do acts of service, and she knows I love her. You see, right? This is all that Jesus is talking about, really. This is the only reasonable evidence to my love for my wife, is to communicate my love to her in a way that she would hear it. 
It's the only reasonable response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is to walk in his footsteps. It's the only reasonable response to the grace gift of the cross of Christ to then obey your servant sacrifice king. It's the only reasonable thing to do next. How your house is built will be revealed. Number four, the foundation will be revealed through testing. It will be revealed. How will it be revealed? It will be revealed through testing. Uh, This is a strange promise in the Bible. We will have tribulations, trials, struggles, griefs, sorrows. In this life, you will have many troubles, Jesus said. People talk about liking the God of, of the New Testament, but not the God of the Old Testament. I like Jesus. He's all like love. No, Jesus said, I came to bring a sword that divides families. You will have trials. The Lord will cast into the eternal fire those who reject my teaching. I mean, Jesus was hardcore. And one of the things that Jesus said is, in this life, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Now, most of you, I don't have to convince of that. You're like, yep, <laughs> feeling it here <laughs> and there and right and various more legitimate and serious aches and pains over the years. Sorrow, heartache, stress, rebellious children, sleepless nights, you know? Trial and struggle is the common lot of man, but only the Christian who is building on the rock of Christ, whose mind is captive to the will of God, will walk in triumph. It's a preposterous thing that the Christian does. The Christian is riddled with aches and pains and facing surgeries and heartache and sleepless nights. And how are you? I'm good. I'm not lying that I'm good. I'm good. Because in spite of these things, I know where I'm going. You see, you live in a state of triumph over the struggles that are very real objectively because you know where you're going. Your mind is captive to the will of God. So you live in a state of triumph. This is kind of what Paul was talking about in Romans 5, verse 3. In the book of Job, there's a passage in which one of Job's comforters says, Hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet... Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. James Montgomery Boyce says it like this, Every child of Adam, you and I, and countless millions of others will experience sorrow, pain, Suffering, disappointment, and eventually death. This is our destiny to pass through fire and in due time be released like the sparks into the air, into eternity. And so what's the solution? Uh, This foundation will be revealed through testing, either through trial on earth or in eternity at the throne. What do you do? Do you bury your head in the sand? Do you distract yourself with work and hobbies? There's no escaping your destiny. It's coming. The solution is to build on a sure foundation. 
The solution is to build on a sure foundation. I want to read to you a series of scripture verses. Don't try to write them all down. I've got to go too fast. We're out of time. You can get my notes. I share them readily. Some pastors charge for them. I give them freely. Anybody got a trumpet to sound? I got a... Isaiah 28, 16. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious corner stone for a sure foundation. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 20. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief corner stone. Shortly after the resurrection, Peter told the Sanhedrin, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Acts 4.11. Paul wrote in his first letter, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Sorry, did I say Paul? I think I meant Peter. Peter wrote this. Now, you who believe this stone is precious. First Peter 2, 6. That's the true sense of Christ's teaching. He's saying, if you want a construction that will last for this life and for eternity, build on me. And if you're doing that, then you can sing with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less, right? Then Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Right? On Christ the solid Rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, yeah. All other ground is sinking sand. Christianity is Jesus Christ. And so the life of blessing promised by Christianity must be built on him. That's the fourth. Five, it's time to choose time to choose. The foundation will be revealed through testing. It is time to choose. I love this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is giving his farewell address. He knows he's about to die. He's a hundred and a million years old. He says this. He lays out a simple ultimatum before the nation of Israel. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you both life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, Choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. Time to choose. As we discussed last week and many times over the past couple of months, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon of contrasts. There is the hypocritical way of the Pharisee, or there is the honest way of the contrite. There is the way of storing treasure on earth or treasure in heaven, the narrow way that leads to life or the wide path that leads to death. And here, there is the house built on the rock or the house built on sand. It's time to choose. I, uh, I, had, I had been singing that hymn basically my entire life. And until you think critically about it, you will probably do like I did and go, uh, what does it mean to stand on the rock of Jesus? I mean, it sounds good and, you know, 
just got to build your house on the rock, you know. <laughs> He's the rock. He's the corner. I, I've come to realize it's, it's not as complicated as, as I often made it. You know what it is? It, it's whoever hears these words of mine and does them. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them. He's building his house on the rock. Not whoever hears these words of mine and tries to convince other people that he's doing them, but whoever hears these words of mine and does them. Uh, Time to choose. Well, three quick points of application. I'm going to do this in like 60 seconds. Oh, gosh. This is going to hurt. All right, there we go. If the whole sermon is a series of contrasts, what is the alternative to a life built on Christ, the solid rock? It's a life built on sand, right? The whole sermon is a series of contrasts. What does that mean? This is the scary part. Your life is either built on the rock of Christ, or it's built on sand. There is no third option. There's a, a, a branch of the military, I think it's the Marines, they use this phrase, you got to find a third way. And it's all about how in combat situations or in overseas survival situations, you are often presented with an impossible choice. I can't go forward, that's the enemy. I can't go backward towards camp, the enemy has encircled me. I can't go, I can't go, I'm a Marine, i got to find a third way. It's good. It's good. I respect and appreciate our men in uniform and the sacrifice that they make. You should shake a veteran's hand anytime you get the chance and thank them for their service. Uh, in, in, in Christian theology, there is no third way. The, the scary part is that your house is either right now a house of cards built on sand or a house built on the rock of Christ. Those are your options. And if the, if the edifice was torn away, like the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. If the curtain were suddenly pulled away and the truth of your life were exposed, one of two things will be revealed, the rock of Christ or the sand that will not hold you. There's no other option. That's scary. Do you want to know why? Because we don't know when the storm is going to come that's going to tear the curtain away. I'll do this just briefly, number two. There is often a temptation in the Christian church to comfort ourselves in our spiritual maturity, to convince ourselves that our house is built on the rock of Christ, but we have to be sober-minded enough to be honest and ask, am I lying to myself? Am I lying to myself? The test of the house built on the rock is obedience. Obedience in the heart Whoever hears and obeys, have you heard and obeyed again and again, brick by brick, right? 
two by four by two by four, nail by nail. Have you heard and obeyed day by day, week by week, year by year? A house isn't built in a single day, nor is a house built in a momentary spurt of spiritual enthusiasm. Day by day, hear and obey. It's better to be honest with ourselves and to begin to repair, to rebuild a shaky foundation than to comfort ourselves with delusion. So that's number two. Number three is simply this. Pick your king as if your life depends on it. Because it does. Right? It does. Your life now depends on it, on the foundation that you're, that you're building upon. Because when sickness comes, when trial comes, when grief comes, when, sick, when, when death and heartache and trouble and unanswered prayers, when they come, and believe me, they will, your life depends on it. I'm struggling. I'm drowning. I'm crumbling. Oftentimes, it's because 10 years ago, you didn't. And then every day since then, you didn't. And then you didn't, and you didn't, and you didn't, and you didn't. And then you say, Pastor, I'm, I'm crumbling. <laughs> Your life depends on it. And then, of course, we will stand before the judgment seat of, of God. Your life depends on it. I am, um, I am very enthusiastically interested in pastoring a group of people who just want to be honest with themselves and with each other and with God and just say, this is who I am genuinely, no pretense, no pretending, no shows of spirituality, just genuine heartfelt contrition, love for the Lord, repentance from sin, reconciliation between one another. I um, can only hope and pray that those who are under my charge are equally as enthusiastically interested in the same. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, may it be so. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your kindness uh, that, that, that digs in and touches our hearts and convicts us and challenges us. Uh, may, by your Spirit, you continue to do so even as we go to you in a moment of corporate prayer, and even as we dismiss uh, for the days that are ahead and the work week that still lies before us, uh, may the power of your word and your spirit continue to get after us, mold us, make us. In Christ's name we ask, amen.